Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Today's episode is brought to you by KeepKey, the easy, safe, and simple way to protect your Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and many other digital assets. There's no time like the present to protect yourself from hackers, malware, and viruses. Visit KeepKey.com to order your secure hardware wallet today and use the code HUMANIST10 for a limited time 10% discount. And this episode is also sponsored by my patrons on Patreon. We got about 40 at about 700 bucks a month. And so I like to give different examples each episode for why they support. And here's from my listener, Sebastian. He says, you're really leading the march on the diversity front, and I want to congratulate you and thank you for helping to open my eyes to the issue. Thank you, Sebastian. Uh, so today we chat with uh, Taylor Pearson, an author and editor-at-large for Ribbon Farm, um, who's into crypto, and uh, we chat about a bunch of different things, um, social scalability, blockchain as time, the blockchain individual, complex systems, uh, this refactor event that he just organized and comparing that to consensus, um, and it's a good episode, it's kind of, it's it covers a lot of ground, um, and a couple things kind of pop to the top. The first is uh, that Taylor really knows his books and content. Uh, we talk about seeing like a state, Black Swan, we talk a lot about Nick Szabo, uh, and we you can kind of imagine this episode as like curating a lot of Nick's writing. Um, and from all those things, we talk about a bunch of kind of crazy things with kind of funny big words like techno-economic societal paradigms or neo-feudal blockchain lords or authoritarian high modernism or crypto-econophysics. Um, so those are some fun words that we use in the uh, episode today. Um, so the kind of three big um, things that, that came out of the episode for me that I want to quickly chat about here. The first is when Taylor and I chat about the transaction sector and he gives this great um, statistic that says, hey, the transaction sector, which is accountants, lawyers, and regulators, um, in 1870 was 24% of gross national product, but by 1970 it was 46% of GNP. And uh, that happened because of specialization and you have these middlemen to help between. Um, and we expect for some of that those middlemen to go away in the future um, as a result of disintermediation and what have you. And the crazy thing is that I think that this is in a deep way what is happening with crypto that can be kind of hard to understand, which is when you think, oh man, the transaction sectors, you know, things are going to become more fluid or less friction or more liquid or whatever. And it's like, okay, yeah, that's cool. But it's kind of hard to visualize and imagine. Um, so I like to think of it as, you know, these roads and everything needs to go on them. And right now they're super wide or long or slow, um, but we are going to be able to decrease the amount of friction that's on them, make them more liquid, um, and then that actually will have a big impact on society. So it's kind of this weird, kind of abstract way of thinking about it, um, and this decreased friction thinking um, that's kind of key to the crypto space. So that's one thing that we talk about, and I love the statistics that he gives. Um, the second thing that we talk about is this uh, organization man turning into the blockchain individual, and that's this idea that in the 50s, people were organization people. They used to work for IBM for 50 years or whatever, and then now, though we're into this freelancer, economy the blockchain individual thing um and i asked him i said hey you know i'm crowdfunded through patreon stake tree i'm a digital nomad do i count as a blockchain individual um and he said hey you might be but um you might also be this neo-feudal crypto lord um and this has made me do some retrospection myself which i've been doing recently about man like these days i'm doing work that i'm super aligned with i've worked hard to make that a reality um but uh, am I this like neo-feudal crypto lord where I'm doing this fun work and then have these like gig economy serfs that are just like doing work beneath me? Um, and in some ways it's true because like I have a, essentially a basic income crowdfunded through Patreon and I have this big social safety net, this big web of trust. Um, and it's in many ways it's like so removed from the reality of like quote unquote normal people. Um, who are dealing with the day-to-day -day things and with debt and all these things. So it's like, I'm not sure. It's it's something uh, that I'm thinking about, which is, hey, if I'm this blockchain individual that's you know has a crowdfunded and has essentially some variant on a basic income uh, and is a digital nomad, 
Am I a neo-feudal blockchain lord? Uh, I hope not, and I'm trying not to be. So if I am being one in various ways, please let me know how I can change. Um, and then the other piece that's interesting from this organization man turning into the blockchain individual is that this is all part of this uh, social structure kind of evolution that we're experiencing now um where you used to have a lot of your connections through work and now you know 30 or 40 percent of people work through the freelance economy um and if those connections those old work connections don't exist then what takes their place and this is essentially a classic example of a creative destruction externality where you create a new system and then it kind of removes the old system and has some negative side effects um and this is uh this concept is it's a crucial one to think about what's happening in the future, um, both from the perspective of something like the block or the organization man turning into the blockchain individual, but also from something like something that Jordan Peterson talks about is, you know, one of the things I think that he is pretty correct on is this, you know, thing about religion, thinking about um, religion in the West. And once you have a lot of decreasing, the amount of people who are into religion is decreasing a bunch. And when that goes away, what happens if people don't have that connection? Um, and I think that uh, that leaves a lot of people confused as to what to do. Um, and you can also think of a lot of the crypto world as people who have lost that kind of deep meaningful connection to some kind of self-actualization or higher meaning but are now getting it through crypto as a religion and finding meaning in life through that yeah so that is uh those are some things we talked about it's a fun episode um it's it's bouncing around it's books it's systems it's crypto so uh i hope you enjoy it Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Reese Lindmark, and you're listening to another episode of Creating a Humanist Blockchain Future. In this podcast, we take a systems-thinking approach to doing good in the world, um, and today we're going to be focusing on Series A, Macrosystems, where we ask the question, where are we as humanity headed? Uh, and today, I'm very happy to introduce Taylor Pearson to the show. Taylor is an independent consultant, the author of The End of Jobs, and an editor-at-large for Ribbon Farm. Uh, Taylor, thanks for being on the show, and welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's exciting. And we are in uh, his apartment in Brooklyn, sorry, in Manhattan. <laughs> uh, he just came back from... Uh, Ribbon Farms Crypto Conference. I just came back from Consensus, uh, so uh, we have we are in different states of being, perhaps. Um, but Taylor, let's just—I guess you're you're currently you're thinking a lot about and possibly writing a book about uh, some of this blockchain crypto stuff. Um, could you, I guess, what at a high level, what gets you in? What got you interested in it? Yeah, so I think there's there are two or three different entry points for me. Uh, one is, uh, most of you mentioned, I have a book called The End of Jobs, which is sort of talking about this uh, phenomenon of like, you know, the gig economy and freelancing and all this stuff. Um, and so this is something that I sort of got fascinated in. I went to college in a small school in Birmingham, Alabama, and it wasn't like a freelancy entrepreneurial vibe. And I sort of, through a, a series of circumstances, fell into this uh, startup and started freelancing. And it was this kind of like whole new world to me. Um, and so my book is basically sort of like my explanation of why that happened, right? Like what is it that's going on um, in the economy and with technology that is um, making this sort of creating this sort of freelance gig economy. Um, and so I think uh, I sort of, at some point there was just sort of switched, uh, flipped a switch in my head. I saw all this blockchain stuff mm -hmm. and I started to see, you know, play out the implications of the technology. Uh, and see how big of a role it could play in that. And I, I think we'll talk about that more, so I'll, uh, I'll leave that there. Um, and then I think the other thing that was really interesting to me, one of, my big, one of the big influences on my thinking is a guy named Nassim Taleb. Uh, his most famous book is The Black Swan. Um, and one of the things he talks about is sort of uh, uh, risk and volatility and how those work. And so... Uh, he got a lot of uh, credit or uh, accolades or whatever. He, his book came out just before the 2008 financial collapse, mm -hmm. and he you know, had a paragraph where he basically said this whole mortgage thing is a complete pyramid, <laughs> and it's going to collapse. Um, and sort of his insight, or one of his insights, is that as you know, we have this increasingly globalized economy, and you think about it, all these systems which are increasingly sort of tightly interoperable, yep. um, you have this possibility of cascading risk, right? This is what we saw in 2008, that uh, you know, the US real estate, residential real estate market almost triggered a collapse. 
um, of the entire financial system across yeah. the entire yeah. world. I mean, yeah. it was like, you know, people thought it was the apocalypse. Yeah. Um, and so I think one of my hopes is we can sort of architect this uh, crypto ecosystem, which um, allows us to maintain these levels of coordination. Like there's a reason all these systems are globalized and all, they're all tightly integrated, right? There's a lot of benefits to that. Um, but is there a way we can sort of get that level of coordination um, without having that same risk, without having that same... Um, I think part of that risk is centralization. I think it's probably more multidimensional than that, but mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. a big element. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I think that coming at it from the freelance perspective and saying, oh, you know, the freelance gig economy, and then when you go into blockchain world, you're like, oh, man, a lot of those similar concepts about kind of sharing economy, abstraction of trust, those kind of things, you're like, ooh, trustless ecosystem, that's going to play a big role here. Um, and yeah, and as you say, I mean, the hope is that... Uh, if you think about the world becoming you know, more tightly connected and faster and more complex, it's like we need kind of our, our global operating system, our technological global operating system to kind of get up to that level of complexity that, uh, that we're starting to go into. Um, so, I mean, so that's a good overview. And, and you're thinking about there's a couple of key concepts that you've uh, you know, written about recently. One is this social scalability piece from Nick Szabo. One is this, you know, organization man turning into the or organization person turning into the blockchain man or one way or the other way. Um, yeah. How do those kind of relate to uh, the, your kind of initial interest in this space? Yeah, so uh, Social Scalability, as you said, it's an article by uh, Nick Szabo uh, and that was, you know, sort of like the things I can look back at that sort of flipped a switch for me. He published mm -hmm. it in early 2017. Uh, Did he really only publish yeah, it in early 2017? Because a lot of his stuff is like late 90s sometimes. Yeah, I, mean, say, I, yeah. I just read an, he has an essay about smart contracts from 1996. Exactly. Yeah. When no one was thinking what? about smart contracts. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he published it very recently. And sort of the idea he's talking about is that uh, the argument he's making is that what makes humans unique is our ability to... Uh, for um, what he calls social scalability. So uh, initially this was enabled by things like language and coordination, right? There were 70,000 years ago, there were six to 10 uh, species of the genus Homo and Homo sapiens, you know, kind of were the ones to last uh, because of this ability to coordinate, right? That you were able to act in a group. Um, and then that sort of ability to act, and we were talking about sort of the end state of this, this very globalized, very uh, sort of networked world developed over time, right? So, you know, the evolution of language, the evolution of culture, um, the evolution of uh, almost every technology, everything we call a quote-unquote technology, enhanced social scalability, yeah. um, you know, credit cards, uh, all these kinds of things. Um, and so if you think about blockchains, uh, blockchains have this potential to be the most uh, socially scalable technology because what they do is uh, you take a sort of abstract trust, right? Yeah. That you can engage in trade with someone else uh, without knowing who that person is or having to trust them in any way. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's a really fascinating notion that we're able to, um, I think the way he puts it sort of like trade off like human efficiency for computer efficiency. Yeah. Um, so there's, I was going back, I, I was rereading his paper and thinking about it, I went back and found uh, another research paper looking at the transaction sector of the U.S. economy. Mm. And the stat was something like in 1870, 20% of the U.S. economy was uh, in the transaction sector. And by 1970, yeah. it was something like 47% of the economy yeah. was in the transaction sector. Yeah. So these were people that were acting as intermediaries. Yeah. Um, and I think sort of at a broad level, what was happening there is... You know, you had this increased specialization that allowed people to be more economically productive, but that productivity could only be realized with a lot of intermediaries linking the pieces together, right? You know, if you were a nuclear physicist, you couldn't freelance, right? You know, you were, you were working as part of, you know, Bell Labs or, um, you know, some sort of large organization, uh, and you needed these intermediaries to put these things together. So this idea of, you know, could we have the same level of coordination, uh, but replacing those human interme intermediaries with software and basically blockchains. Yep, yep, exactly. And I think, uh, and by the way, Taylor has a great, uh, the Nick Szabo social scalability piece is relatively long and you just wrote a nice kind of condensation of it. Um, and I think that's, that's something that a lot of people that a lot of people kind of don't get is like when you say, hey, the transaction, just like the transaction industry, 26% uh, in 1870, whatever, 48% or whatever, and more recently, 
we, when we think about that, it's like, oh, if those transaction costs go down, that's a really big deal. Uh, and it's kind of something that's kind of hard to feel, but you're like, you just think about the whole system becoming more frictionless, more liquid, um, and that's going to happen. Um, so the social scalability piece, how do you see that kind of then, uh, you know, you see that as part of this, the, the, the future of where things are going and we're going to be able to create more socially scalable structures and things like that. Why, like, where do you see that going, I guess? Um, so I guess to the extent I've thought about it, uh, like I think I go back to sort of, you know, we were talking about the 2008 financial collapse. Yep. Um, there's a good piece. There's an organization. I think they're in Melbourne, Australia. It's like the blockchain research. RMIT. RMIT is yes, great. Yeah, Jason Potts. Yeah. Um, they had a really good essay that was talking about this idea of uh, a building sort of like a crypto bank. Mm-hmm. Um, and this idea that like the, the bank would basically, you know, through smart contracts be self-liquidating. That the second it's... Uh, liabilities drop below its asset, it would instantly liquidate everything. Mm. All the funds would get returned to everyone. Um, and you wouldn't have sort of like this 2008 situation because you're able to achieve this very high level of transparency yeah. um, through technology as opposed to, you know, the transaction sector, in this case, sort of like regulators and lawyers and accountants and all that. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think like that's sort of the exciting thing to me that there's this like big, I guess like this big pushback against uh, globalization and, you know, this whole sort of, like, nationalist narrative. Um, I think, like, a lot of that is uh, is very reasonable, right? You sort, of see, you sort of see this deterioration of, like, existing social structures and, and people feel uh, very sort of, like, anonymous and yep. alone. Yeah. Um, and so I think sort of, I guess I'm interested in this idea of, like, you know, is there a way we can sort of... Um, interact with each other in a way that uh, allows us to maintain sort of the, the benefits of a very global, very specialized world mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, without some of the drawbacks that we're seeing. Yep. And I think when I hear that, I kind of pattern match into like the sovereign individual where you're like, you're a person, you could feel really alone, it's, and it's right here. Uh, yeah, it's on the desk in front of us. Um, uh, you could feel alone with the massive 7.5 billion people hyper networked all the various you know climate change existential risks all those things and uh and it's also like hey can we somehow connect to that greater human organism without feeling like dwarfed by it and while feeling connected to it um yeah i'm not uh i'm not sure what that'll look like because we've only recently had that ability to really conceptualize of it in this sense do you think so thinking about this the there's a social scalability piece which allows us to do um, to to kind of decrease the transaction cost for creating uh, what I would call like organizational technology where it's like you know nation states firms things like that um, and it says hey we can now we've decreased the cost of trust therefore people can come together in these new blobs random blobs that's one side of where you're interested by and then the other side is this kind of um, the, the, the time piece. Uh, so t- can you explain uh, this blockchains as kind of a timekeeping machine? Yes. Or how this, do you I noticed yeah. this metaphor keep coming up of blockchains as like clocks or mm-hmm. watches. And so Nick Zabo has an uh, essay he did on this as well. Um, I think a trusted measure of sacrifice was the name of it. But you say if you go back and you're in sort of pre-14th century Europe, uh, the way time is tracked is mostly on sundials, mm-hmm. and then the time is usually was rung from sort of like the church or the parish, or whatever the sort of like religious the bell tower was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, you're ringing the thing from the, this bell tower, and you're using the sundial. And in a sense, so everyone trusted sundials because sundials were uh, you know censorship resistant, right? Mm-hmm. You couldn't. There was no way for anyone. You know, if your boss wanted you to work longer hours, yeah. he couldn't manipulate the sun yeah. to stay up longer, <laughs> stay up lower. Sundial censorship resistant. Yeah. Um, but there were some problems with sundials. Um, for one, they weren't always super accurate. If there was, it was a super cloudy day, you couldn't mm-hmm. tell exactly what time it was. Yeah. Um, and two, when you had this sort of quote unquote centralized timekeeping <laughs> device. Uh, it was very hard to get more specialized, right? You know, if we wanted to meet for lunch at one o'clock tomorrow, mm-hmm. we couldn't ask the church to ring the bell mm-hmm. at one. Hey, you know, yeah, meet up, yeah. <laughs> or just ring it for major events. Yeah. Um, and so, 
around the 14th, 15th century, uh, mechanical clocks uh, sort of combined with sunglasses uh, created a way to measure a sort of censorship-resistant fungible measure of time. As you could toll the hour, or the half hour, or the 15 minutes uh, very predictably, and everyone would sort of agree that this was a fair measure of time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if, if you're my boss and you're uh, hiring me to work, we could agree that, you know, I start working on the seventh toll and I stop working on the fourth toll. Yeah. And, we, you know, we both know that that's a, a fair amount of time. Uh, and so, in a lot of ways, the clock was, the clock was this necessary instrument uh, the mechanical clock to move from sort of an economy based on serfdom mm-hmm. and slavery, yep. where I, you know, I as a laborer didn't have some fungible measure of my time that I could mm-hmm. sell to one based on um, employment in firms, right? Because now all of a sudden, if I'm an artisan, you know, I make shoes uh, for you know a shoe factory or whatever, a shoe guild. Um, there's a fungible censorship-resistant measure of uh, that work, yep. which I can then sell, and it all of a sudden it creates a market, right? Like if you're only one, pay me, uh, you know, five gold doubloons for <laughs> my uh, month of work, uh, you know, eight hours a day, and then you know, I can go find a John's willing to pay me six More. gold doubloons, <laughs> and she's willing to pay seven gold doubloons. Um, and so obviously that was sort of this like necessary precondition for the move from farms to cities, you know, specialized labor, you need to be able to sell your time. Um, and so it very much, you know, you think about the clock, like it very much changed the structure of work, right? Mm-hmm. Because all of a sudden we were able to have this um, fungible censorship-resistant measure of time. Yeah. Um, we could reorganize the way we worked. Yeah. Uh, and so and at you, that point, it was pretty. It was pretty blurry. It was only every. It was morning. It was night. There was a sundial. It was you know just a couple tolls a day or whatever. Right. We've gotten increasingly compact with our time measuring machines. Yes, yeah. and down to the microsecond <laughs> yeah. or whatever right now. Yeah. Um, so you could sort of extend that over into blockchains where, you know, right now, if you are a, uh, you know, a user experience designer, you're selling your time, right? That's generally how, you know, we're organizing work, but you think about blockchains as sort of this, uh, this censorship resistant database, this fungible database where, you know, if uh, I'm a UX designer now and I go to you and I, you know, do some UX design, we could track in a very measurable way the effects of that um and i can be compensated based on whatever the effects of that are yep um and so i think that's going to sort of pretty yeah re you know do reorganize the way we think about work um and the way they kind of structured uh like not unlike the mechanical clock Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i think that there's a it's kind of a the when I hear that I think about um, do you know Hollow Chain by the way? I met one of the founders. Yeah, this uh, weekend. Arthur maybe or something. Um, Anders or, or one of those. Yeah, yeah. okay. So, um, they have this weird system where it's like agent based, um, and it's when I when I hear this time piece, I'm thinking about a version of reality where it's like we're essentially at all points in time we will all be checking our given realities with the master blockchain ledger or whatever and then depending on where you are and so if we're just working you and i together maybe we're in a state channel maybe we're in some kind of weird agent-based thing we're doing our own quick versions of time and then we eventually go back up to the ledger and say this happened at this version at this point in time uh and then uh and then there's lots of other things on the ledger i guess is there this this piece of time here is it like i'm not sure if i quite get the I get the, the version of time that's fungible, and now I get that blockchains are time-stamped things, but why, I guess, is it that important that we have these new time-stamped transparent databases? Yeah, I'm maybe thinking about it, you know, I, I think time is sort of one component, right? Mm-hmm. The clock sort of allowed us to measure time, but mm-hmm. I'm thinking about you know, how blockchains are gonna allow us to track other resources, which mm-hmm. now seem sort of illegible and fuzzy in the same yeah. way time might have seemed to someone that was only used mm-hmm. to sundials, right? Like the you know, if you uh, are a, a developer or whatever sort of work you do, uh, yeah, we'll, you know, we'll stick with the UX designer mm-hmm. example. Um, you could, you know, well, this looks really crummy and this looks really good and this works okay. And you can sort of tell somewhat evaluating people, you know, how good this work is yeah. or how bad this work is. But it's sort of fuzzy, sort of in the same way I think time would be fuzzy to a sundial. Yeah. But all of a sudden, if you can... Um, you know, I talked to a guy a couple of days ago, and he was sort of building this this idea of a uh, 
was like a, a blockchain code marketplace. Mm -hmm. So like if you write a piece of uh, open source software, uh, they're they sort of are trying to create this mechanism where you know if I every time I API call that I use that yeah. software, there's some I'm compensated in some token yep. for you know building that library or whatever that thing I contributed is, yep. uh, which we just haven't been able to do in the past mm -hmm. because it just wasn't it wasn't feasible. You couldn't make these sorts of tiny tiny <coughs> transactions. Yeah. Uh, and so the choice was either, you know, you just gave the software away for free or you had to find some other way, you know, you sold, you, gave for, for, you gave the software away for free and that built up your reputation and you sold your time yeah. um, or you had to package it in a product or some other way. Yeah. But now we can do these function as a service kind right. of things. Yeah, that's a yeah. good term. Yeah, yeah. That. That's a, yeah, that's a good term for it. Um, yeah, so, well, I guess so. So you're, you're talking about someone like the in-dimensional money stuff where we went from one-dimensional money, like U.S. dollars, and now we have in-dimensional money where it's just like it could track anything. How is that, I guess, is it, loop it back to the, the time piece for me. Why is this time piece, uh, that, that clock metaphor, is, is it primarily a clock from the perspective of, hey, at any given clock tick, here's the current state of all the things in the world, um, and the blockchain keeps that clock tick, or where... How do you see blockchains changing that clock tick, I guess? So I guess the, the example I think of is you're, uh, I, you're legibilizing. So this idea mm. of uh, previously time was illegible. It was very hard to measure. It was very hard to track. It was sort of fuzzy and yeah. nebulous. And then you had the mechanical clock come mm -hmm. along. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, it became legible, which allowed you to do new things with it that you couldn't yeah. have done previously. Yeah. And so, I, really, the, the project I saw that sort of made this click for me was uh, the basic attention token, yeah. which I don't know a lot about the project actually, but this idea, right, that attention, which is this, like time, is this scarce resource, yeah. which is, which you know, we all agree is valuable, yeah. but which we have a very difficult time measuring. Yes. I don't know, you know, I, I can't look at uh, an account of how I'm spending my attention, yes. though I would like to, right? Yes. Like I would like to be able to audit yeah. that and go, huh, how am I, you know, what am I paying attention to right now? Is this, is this what I want to be able to pay attention to? Um, so the idea is you can start to actually sort of measure those things mm -hmm. um, and in a way like create markets around them, right? That, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'd rather pay for this than, you know, have to give up my attention for it or, or vice versa. Yeah. 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 I agree that the basic attention token, sometimes you'll tell people, you're like, Hey, usually you use Facebook. And when you're pretty giving your attention to Facebook, Facebook, the advertiser's paying for your time and they're giving it to Facebook. And then you're like, but with basic attention token, you can get paid for your attention. And then every, that for people they are like, Whoa, you know, they, they have this kind of yeah feeling of like, oh, my, I am giving my attention to Facebook and they are getting paid and I should get those basic attention tokens. Um. Cryptocurrency is vibrant and exciting, but it's not without its share of bad actors. Exchanges and personal accounts can get hacked, computers can be infected with malware. Left unprotected, your digital wealth is up for grabs. Don't let yourself be a victim. Keepy is the safest and simplest way to protect your Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and other tokenized assets. This hardware wallet is a separate device that you control. Brought to you by the pioneering team at Shapeshift, KeepKey works with the wallet software on your computer to manage your private keys and transactions. Your device is pin protected, which provides protection if it falls into the wrong hands. Its large display lets you carefully view and approve every transaction. And if your key key is ever lost or stolen, you can safely recover your device without compromising its private keys. The bottom line, you'll sleep easier knowing that your digital wealth is safe and secure. Visit keepkey.com to order yours today and use the code HUMANIST10 for a limited time 10% discount. So, okay, yeah, so there's the time piece, there's the social scalability piece. There's also this kind of third concept that you're into this blockchain, this organization man turning into the blockchain, is it organization, oh, organization man turning into the blockchain individual. Um, tell me more about that. Yeah, so there's a book from the 50s called The Organization Man. Mm -hmm. uh, it's by a guy named William White. He's a reporter at Fortune. And it's sort of this like really fascinating, I would call it like gonzo sociology mm -hmm. book. So he's a reporter for Fortune. He's you know, talking to all these people that work at these big, uh, multinational companies um, and it was this sort of like he's talking about you know at least in the US right we, there was this shift sort of from this like very frontiersman um, in a sense like very entrepreneurial independent mm, society gold rush kind of stuff or is yeah. that the vibe <laughs> um, 
uh, <coughs> or certainly sort of like you know smaller self-sufficient communities mm-hmm. uh, to these very large organizations. You know, for the reason you talked about earlier, right? That you could have within the context of a large organization, sort of the you know the, you know I think about my dad actually, who grew up on a small farm in Northwest Tennessee, and his number one goal in life was to get off the farm. Yeah. Uh, because you know you wake up at five a.m. in the morning and you work until nine at night, and it's yeah. not particularly fun. Yeah. Um, and so you know he went to school and he got an education. Uh, and he got a job for a company, yeah. and like that was a lot better than working at the farm yeah. um, because he had a specialized skill, and within the context of his company, that skill was you know very valuable uh, to the market. Um, and so that's kind of the economic piece, but this had sort of sociological implications, right? Yeah. So there's like this chapter on like the suburbs, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. like everyone lives in these same sort of cookie cutter houses, which are in these sort of you know cookie cutter subdivisions. Um, and then there's, he calls it a, I'm, I'm trying to remember now, but it's like the collectivist ethos, right? But all of a sudden you had this, people had this sense that um, what was most important was the organization. Mm-hmm. That this like sense of belongingness and that, you know, without the organization, I am nothing. Mm-hmm. And in a certain sense, that was true, right? <coughs> without the organization, like my dad goes back to the farm. And so like the organization plays this really um, important role. Yep. Um, but at the same time, you get, you know, the, the sort of like anti-organization man of the organization era was um, the scientists. So there's always this like interesting mm. tension in organizations that employ a lot of scientists because sort of like the highly conformant scientist was also a very unproductive scientist, mm. right? That you needed these sort of like uh, people embedded within the organization, like a Bell Labs or a Xerox Park um, kind of thing that were doing sort of like weird mm-hmm. stuff in this very individualistic sort of anti um, anti-establishment way. Yep. Um, and so one of the things I sort of took away from that book is this idea of sort of you have these different um, techno, you know, techno-economic paradigms, to use yep. it to know our word, but the, yep. you know, this technology creates this sort of economic structure, which then has social implications, yep. right? Techno-economic so, social paradigms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> make it really long. Um, but yeah, so, you know, the, we had this, um, you know, sort of, uh, communication technology, the different sort of like industrial revolution technologies that allowed for these large centralized organizations to be very, very economically efficient. Yeah. And so people wanted to participate in them and that, you know, their participation sort of shaped their, uh, their social reality. Um, and so, you know, we were talking about the blockchain earlier as sort of this thing that allows social scalability, that allows people to do highly specialized work. Mm-hmm. Um, without necessarily being within the context of this organization. Right? You know, the example of um, the developer that writes a library and then he receives, you know, every time that library is used in some other piece of software, he receives some sort of, uh, you know, micropayment, yeah. tokenized thing, um, compensation for it. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, that's going to have social implications on us too, right? We're going to start to behave differently and act differently because... Uh, you don't necessarily need to belong anymore, right? That all of a sudden you can be very economically productive outside the context of an organization. Um, And so the internet, that started to be true on the internet, I think. Like, if you look at Mm -hmm. the industries very touched by the internet, Um, you know, if you, my background is marketing, you know, but if you sold, um, you know, you did pay-per-click marketing services for uh, Facebook or Google and you were very good at that, you can make a lot of money uh, without being in the organization, right? You yep. need uh, access to Facebook, and you need you know one person to sort of pay to manage their um, their advertising spend. And so I think what blockchains are going to do is, and and that's possible, you know, particularly like you have very hard metrics, right? I, yep. I know that you know, I'm, I'm going to pay you one dollar to do these advertising, and you're going to give me two dollars exactly. back in revenue, yeah. Yeah. and you know as a you know, a business, you know, you'll always pay $1 to get $2, right? You know, you you, you pay as many dollars as you can as long as that continues to be true. Um, And so this idea that uh, that sort of phenomenon is going to start to extend uh, much more broadly than just, uh, you know, some of like the narrow industries it's affected now. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So kind of like an expansion of freelancer slash gig slash online digital nomad uh, realities. Do you think... Is it so for someone like me? I might be a good example of the blockchain man. Uh, I am a digital nomad. I am peer funded entirely through Patreon and StakeTree, um, and I do uh, StakeTree is like a Patreon but with ETH. Um, and uh, nice. yeah, it's fun. Um, so how is 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 this is the blockchain man? 
similar or different than like the, the like sovereign individual? Um, and am I am I embodying either? Or what are your <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, so I think I guess that I sort of have like a ways in which this could go well and ways in which this could go badly scenario. Mm-hmm. I think uh, blockchain to me feels like a very uh, the term I've used is like a neo-feudal technology. Mm. Um, the other, I've been playing with the idea of like the balkanization of everything, yes. right? So you yeah. think of, um, I'm trying to remember the stats, but like over the last 50 years, there have been more and more nation states because larger nation states have started to break up. Yeah. So like the Balkans was a very dramatic case of this. Um, but this this trend, I mean, this appears to be a, a fairly secular trend and continuing. Um, so, you know, this is happening at the nation state level, um, you know, within these sort of like internet affected <coughs> Um, sectors, it's happening at the company level, right? People are leaving the firm to be able to um, work on a, an independent basis. Um, and so I think, you know, we talked the example of the developer, you know, the code library, the UX designer. Uh, I think what we'll start to see as that happens is that you realize that, you know, within the context of an organization, maybe, you know, that a great developer is paid, you know, making up these numbers, $300,000 and a uh, you know, entry level is paid $100,000. Yep. Um, but the, the disparity between how productive they are is actually probably even larger than that. Yeah. The really, really good developer is probably worth $5 million a year. And, you know, the people at the bottom are probably worth, you know, negative or zero um, or, you know, much less, right? Yep. You see this very steep power law relationship um, between the two. So, I, I mean, I think there's going back to this like neo-feudal idea, right? You could see this sort of like class of quote-unquote sovereign individuals uh-huh, or uh-huh. sort of this neo-feudal 1%, whatever uh-huh, you want to call uh-huh, it, uh-huh. Um, where because they're sort of being directly compensated for the economic value they provide. Yeah. And I, I know, I'm separating sort of like economic value and worth as a human being yeah, or, or totally. whatever that is. Yes. Um, you know, you, could, you can imagine this class of something akin to, uh, you know, neo-feudal lords or blockchain feudal lords or digital feudal lords yep um that's my goal by the way that's if anyone wants to work on my a, be a surf on my blockchain farm you can apply for ETH commons yeah <laughs> uh yes I, I mean I think like there's I mean it's pretty easy to see the dystopian yeah. uh ways that can play out I think like my uh, you know, yeah, my, my pessimistic view is that, like, you know, you see this very, like, neo-feudal thing, and you see sort of, um, uh, you know, I think that the, the flip side of social scalability, the downside of that is it, it allowed increased economic prosperity, increased economic well-being, but there was, like, a real social cost to that, right? Mm-hmm. That, um, you know, talk about the dissolution of the firm, but, you know, often people today, like, the, most of their friends are from work, and, like, they have those friends because they go into the same office, and get to hang out. Um, and sort of this like feeling of isolation, I think is because you've had these other social structures devolve, right? You, you know, you used to go to church and you had a bunch of your friends at church and um, you didn't move around as much, right? You're, in a, you're probably you're gonna- close to your family. You're stay close yeah. to your family, you're gonna live in the same region or the same city. Um, and that's sort of starting to devolve as well. So you, know, you could imagine this world of, you know, neo-feudal lords with, you know, fully autonomous but isolated uh, individuals, um, so that doesn't seem that great. Um, I <laughs> Not guess to my, mention the AI, you know, robots that are yeah that right. they create that are making the money Which and are, yeah. yeah, fighting to stay just in surf status, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> being exactly. overtaken by the AI. Um, but I think maybe the more hopeful, the more hopeful vision for that is um, you're able to see people. You know, the same sort of like sovereign individual, neo-feudal lord idea, right, is also someone who has a large degree of agency, who has a large degree of autonomy, who has a large degree of, um, you know, probably like creativity um, and the way they're able to do their work and their lives. Um, you know, that, seems, that seems promising. And then I think, I guess my, ho- you know, my optimistic hope, right, is that you know, it seems like humans, we really need some of these social structures, the, you know, something between sort of the individual and yes. the, the state or the blockchain yes. or whatever is at the, the globe, top. But yeah. Huh. Um, and, you know, I think what the internet started to do is, right, sort of short people based on interest or um, values 
rather than just something sort of arbitrary like geography, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people that were early in the internet sort of describe like growing up and feeling sort of like isolated and like they didn't yeah. fit in and then they found this internet thing and they found whatever the, you know, you know whatever seemingly mm -hmm. weird thing they were into, they found other people that were, um, they were into that as well. So, you know, maybe what it will allow is that all of a sudden you can sort of, you know, find your tribe, so to speak. I don't love the word tribe, <laughs> but, you know, you're able your to people. sort of organize yeah, yeah. based on um, your interest and your values as opposed to something more arbitrary. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, before we kind of move on to the, the thing that I thought I have on that, the thing that I get worried about with that is that people will purely align on their things that they are already close to others on and won't, and you'll get a red feed, blue feed kind of situation where you also need to optimize for minimum difference, but also optimize for maximum difference, kind of, where you say, hey, who's also super different from me? Uh, because you want to be aware of what's happening there, too, and you, you don't want to, uh, yeah, so, yeah. Um, that's, uh, yeah. I, I guess it seems like the answer is both. Like, I think, like, my both, sort yeah. of social media experience is, like, I, I feel like I get much, you know, and I, maybe I'm just deluding myself, right, but I, I feel like I get sort of a broad swath of opinions, and I'm able to, you know, as opposed to if I was just living in whatever, you know, a small yeah. town in uh, Tennessee in the 1960s. You just get a much smaller view of the world. Right? Yes. I, I feel like I have a much broader view. But at the same time, it is, it's equally easy to sort of isolate yourself yeah. Yeah. Um, into this, yeah, tribal To your thing. people, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I guess one thing, one final kind of question. So we've, we've talked about there's the social scalability piece. There's the blockchain as a timekeeper with like these new in-dimensional money and being able to kind of track all these different things. Uh, and there's also the kind of shift away from the organization man to, or the organization yeah, man to the blockchain individual. Um, is there – so another thing I know that you're interested in is kind of uh, like complex systems thinking. Uh, and so how do you – when you put on your like systems hat, what then do you see when you look at the blockchain crypto world? So I think one of the big things is uh, – I mentioned this idea of like legibility or legibilizing others. Um, and I think that's – uh, it's a very two-way sword. The, the terms uh, originally I got it from this book called Seeing Like a State by mm -hmm. James C. Scott. Um, and he sort of talks about in a very negative light that um, what happened when like the modern state arose is that you had this like, you know, the example he gives is a, uh, a forest suddenly becomes just a quantity of wood and you fail to see it sort of like the holistic thing that it is. Yeah. You know, it's also a place for the teenagers in the village to go away and get away from their parents and you know, talk to their girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever. And it's also a place, for, you know, for people to go for walks and socialize. But if you're, you know, a bureaucrat sitting in Paris and you're making decisions about rural France, uh, none of that information, that's not legible to you. You can't see the teenagers walking around because, you know, the, the seat of government or where these decisions are being made is, um, you know, geographically moved away and you, you sort of, you that data is not legible. What is legible is, you know, how much wood the forest produces. Yeah, you so quantify you make, some KPIs right. and then, yeah. Uh -huh. And so you, you start to make decisions uh, based on that quantity of wood um, as opposed to sort of the full thing that it is. Uh, so if blockchain legibilizes many things, then I guess, is that a good outcome? Like there's one kind of fine outcome, which is pre all that stuff, which is like everything's organic and stuff's going. Then there's like the outcome from seeing like a state perspective where it's like, hey, we only optimize for these given KPIs, don't see the full system and just go and get those KPIs and there's lots of externalities. And then this future reality is like, oh, we have in-dimensional money that tracks all the things on all the blockchains and like everything is legibilized. Yeah. Is that is is that kind of the reality that you think is gonna exist? Well, I think if you could actually get everything legible, <laughs> It might work because then all of a sudden you, you can account for everything. Uh -huh. yeah. But I think the more likely scenario is we're going to have a lot more stuff legible. But we're necessarily, you know, there's probably never going to be like a love coin <laughs> that tracks, you yeah. know, the people you <laughs> My love. My friend is making like coins. So, yeah. <laughs> Maybe there is. Uh, but, you know, it seems like there's some, there will always be some illegible things. And often those things are the things that are very valuable to us. Yeah. Like, you know, you know, how much you love your partner or your sense of connection whatever yeah yeah um sorry sorry I interrupt, but was that from a systems hat perspective that's where you're going is that kind of yeah that uh i think legibility can be good 
as long as you sort of know what you don't know, right? That you, it's, it's helpful to know how much wood the forest can produce as long as you know that's not the only thing the forest is used for, right? And, I, and like KPIs are useful um, as long as you know that there is more to the reality than the KPIs, right? Um, but I think, you know, that's, that's very difficult to do and, and may not be, you know, in practice may not happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, and from a systems perspective, it's kind of a weird, systems people can be where they say, hey, there's this very complex system, and like everything, there's all these agents that are interacting with each other in these ways, which have emergent properties and blah, blah, and I think that it's funny because the blockchain feels kind of like, it's like, yes, we understand that everything is complex, and we want to, in some ways, decomplexify it, or like, you know, check yeah. check everything. Well, um, I think a lot, a lot of people are approaching... I guess the more optimistic, I think a lot of people are approaching it sort of from that view. Uh, the term Sky Eugene's book is uh, authoritarian high modernist. The sort uh-huh. of bureaucrat imperious is the authoritarian high modernist mm-hmm. that is, you know, dictating to this villager yeah. in France how they ought to live their lives. Yeah. And um, he sort of, you know, he gives you know, a lot of the, like, you know, famines in the Ukraine and the USSR, um, Right, this is an example of, you know, they're looking at the data and they're not seeing sort of like the illegible, yeah. in this case, like really tragic human cost yeah. um, for what that is. And I was going somewhere and I totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> uh, but yeah, pretty much that, that uh, the people, when they have that, uh, the authoritarian high modernist view that they're there, there's lots of data that they don't see, they can't empathize with those people down there. Um, and I was saying that the systems... The kind of negative perspective is that the blockchain folks want to take the system and make it all, uh, it's not necessarily bad or good, but they want to take the whole system and make everything clear about that system yeah. uh, and then optimize it, you know, yeah. with incentives and various coins or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah I, the, I remember where I was going now. Nice. So, yeah, yeah. The, um, <laughs> you know, like markets are interesting. Uh, because they, the markets sort of allow for you get coordination without the central authority, right? Yeah. Um, there's a, a I'm trying to remember the name of this paper now. It's uh, Friedrich Hayek is like the, from the 20s or 30s, but he talks about this idea of like the price mechanism is a, a measure of information. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. uh, you know, when bacon became popular in uh, hipster restaurants, uh, the price of bacon went up, and everyone else involved in the bacon industry had to make decisions based on that. Without you know needing some central planner to coordinate who could do what, so you know you know the pork farmers knew that oh well you know if I make more pigs or whatever then you know, there's more money to be made and mm-hmm. and bacon and other restaurants have to decide well you know maybe we should serve less bacon or do we you know do we increase our prices on our menu to compensate for this yeah. uh, and so you're able to aggregate and pass all this information around um, and so I think, I think there's some some sense or some vision of like you know, if blockchain is sort of expanding markets into all these new illegible things, um, maybe we're able to like more effectively um, sort of like aggregate that information. Yep, yep. And there's something both, there's something kind of hyper-capitalist about it where it's like marketize all the things. Uh, and there's also something where like the people who want to marketize all the things believe that some of the issue now is that we have markets on many things but don't have markets on all things. Yeah, so I think there's also a book, Radical Markets, uh, that Vitalik just referenced. Yeah, that, rather, yeah rather view. Yeah, which I think is going to be, we'll have some of that uh, information as well, which is, hey, what happens when we turn lots of things into markets? Um, so my final question for you, Taylor, today is um, thinking about, so you just organized uh, this Ribbon Farm Refactor Camp, uh, which was a blockchain crypto, a bunch of Ribbon Farm folks getting together to talk or blockchain crypto. And Ribbon Farm, by the way, for people who don't know, is this great like long-form uh, webs- journalism website that has kind of off-the-cuff ideas or whatever. And when Taylor went to that, I went to uh, Coindesk's Consensus, which for me personally, different people have different alignment with different things. Uh, I was not too aligned with the consensus conference. Uh, lots of people from Deloitte and doing enterprise stuff or whatever. Um, so tell me, just make me jealous for a little bit and tell me what was like one or two of your favorite things from the, the, that conference, vibes, talks, any of those things that from you organizing this Ribbon Farm event. Uh, yeah, so it was probably the opposite. I mean, it was much. I think we had 130 people mm-hmm. in a sort of uh, warehouse co-working space in rural Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it was really interesting. I guess sort of my hope with the event was just to get a bunch of interesting people together and um, see what sort of like weird stuff we could get up to. So I'm trying. I guess a couple of things we we're talking about. Uh, uh, 
blockchains or like bitcoins and um, space travel mm -hmm. uh, that you have to have the information is limited by the spa uh, the speed of light mm -hmm. yep. and so you know what happens uh, the example someone gave is you know if you're taking a starship to Alpha Centauri which I think is like five light years away uh -huh. um, and you have a bunch of debt on earth mm -hmm. you could uh, pay off all your debt halfway on that trip and before that uh, the information in that block mm -hmm. got hashed and, and mm. sent back to Alpha Centauri, you'd have like three years on Alpha Centauri to, to blow all your money and mm. double spend it because the information wouldn't get passed around. <laughs> so it's sort of like the, the speed of Beating light the double spend problem. To, yeah. um, and then uh, I've heard people talk about that. There's like some real Earth implications of that as well, right? Because mm -hmm. I mean, on Earth, <laughs> we're still limited by the speed of light. It's just the scale is, is much, much smaller, so it's less of an issue. Yep. Um, What's another talks? There's one on uh, crypto econophysics. Mm. Uh, it's sort of making this analogy between how uh, how flight works, the dynamics of flight and flows, mm -hmm. um, and sort of like how that analogizes to the uh, the crypto ecosystem. So this idea of uh, how uh, an airplane gets lift. Mm -hmm. um, is if you, if you look, if you could sort of zoom in on the molecules around an airplane wing, yep. there's this sort of like a uh, very frothy barrier layer yep. uh, where the molecules are, are sort of moving very quickly. They're going in these little circles. I don't remember any of these terms. <laughs> uh, and then sort of this like calmer space around, right? Sort of if you look at sort of like the, uh, the the crypto market or the crypto ecosystem and then just you know, everyone else on earth right there's this sort of like frothy barrier of individuals mm -hmm. um, that are sort of propagating this out into the, the broader ecosystem and so achieving the sort of liftoff uh -huh. um, you know as it accelerating you know, uh, crypto seems to have some interesting unique properties that have accelerated that lift in yep. a lot of ways yep yep um I think that uh, for someone who's, thank you for both those examples, I think that for someone who went to consensus, they would also, for many of them, they're like, great, I'm glad I went to consensus and not your thing where you talk about techno-econophysics and uh, the speed of light going to, you know, Alpha Centauri and double spending. Um, so with that, we're pretty much out of time. Um, Taylor, on A, you can buy his book, The End of Jobs, theendofjobs.com. Is that right? Yeah. Um, you can also find uh, Taylor on Twitter. What's your Twitter uh, username? Uh, Taylor Pearson Me. Uh -huh. Boom. Yeah. Um, and anything else you'd like to tell our, our listeners? That's it. Thank you all for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, and if you want to support me on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash rieslimmark. That's patreon.com slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Or you can go to staketree.com slash rieslimmark to stake some ETH. Okay, goodbye, everybody.